following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. As we begin to open the eyes if they've been closed and adjusting the body as you need to, finishing up the formal part of our meditation, it's also a good time just to forgive ourselves for any wandering of the mind, any chronic sense of not being as good of a meditator as we might want to be or think we should be. Obviously, I don't think I'm alone. We have a lot of conditioned habits to judge ourselves, think other people are better or whatever. You know, just different ways of feeding self-centered dramas around even our practice, let alone all those other parts of our lives. So it's good to end the sit with a serene, forgiving smile that understands, you know, that we're really in it for the long haul. And this seems especially relevant at the beginning of the year for us to reflect together about awareness practice. Often we use the word mindfulness, but in some ways the word awareness might be even more useful. Because with the word mindfulness, it, it really seems to be something that we do. Oh, I'm going to be mindful, I'm going to try to be mindful. But the word awareness, um, it's, and it's not that that directing attention doesn't have a place, it's a really useful mental muscle to have, to be able to pay attention to a particular experience, to direct our attention this way and that way as needed. But when you look at the Buddhist teachings, and he taught for about 45 years in northern India, about 2,500 years ago, most of the what the Buddha had to say about how we human beings can more directly, more effectively address the existential uneasiness of our hearts, most of those practices, most of the way of practicing involves sati, this word that usually gets translated as mindfulness and more often now as awareness or mindful awareness. But it isn't something we do as much as something that we're learning to recognize, we're recognizing the awareness that's here and now, that's timeless, right? And, and we're learning to strengthen it in part by just keeping it in mind. So like a day of good practice would be a day where we're doing what we need to do as a human being, our jobs, our relationships, whatever. But all day long we're keeping in mind awareness and thereby strengthening and we're really strengthening the recognition and the valuing of awareness. It's this amazing tool of purification, awareness is. And, you know, it's an imperfect metaphor, the mirror, but it's as if there's this amazing mirror that can easily and actually effortlessly reflect back to the mind everything that's going on. 
And you see, it's, it's such a powerful tool of learning, of insight, because the mind has this reflective knowing that allows it to connect the dots, the causal or conditional unfolding of experience. So the learning, the insight is really learning about the lawful, the impersonal, but very lawful unfolding of body, mind, emotion, the larger world, the inner world. One of the real foundations of what the Buddha came to understand is this conditional nature, which is related to the teachings on karma, that things arise and pass away lawfully, conditionally, and the intentions, motivations in our heart are really determinative about that in, in a lawful, natural unfolding. And so what awareness does is it illuminates this conditional, lawful unfolding. And because of that, there's some possibilities of living more skillfully. And without it, this is the, you know, the, the scary side, without it, we're destined by default to do what we've always done before and get similar results that we've gotten before. And this endless spinning, doing what we've done, getting similar results, even though, of course, the circumstances are never exactly the same, but the patterns, the reactive patterns, the desiring, desiring patterns of desiring, the patterns of aversion, the patterns of closing down, numbing out, yeah, they, they sort of are predictable. And then the results are also predictable, getting what we've gotten before stuck in these ruts, these grooves that have been set in motion in the past. And it's, it's really oppressive, this trap of the tendency. It isn't personal. It isn't like I'm personally failing. It's natural for my mind to fall into its old grooves. And practice is to rally the heart and mind to recognize the grooves and recognize the very limitations of the grooves, like, oh, I don't want to repeat that, and to find another alternative. And the reliance on awareness is that something needs to illuminate the danger of just always doing what we've always done, always getting what we've always gotten. Something has to illuminate that for the heart because that illumination of what's helpful, what's not helpful, what's skillful, what's unskillful, what contributes to our own and other suffering, what contributes to the healing for ourselves and for the world. Without that illumination, we're in a sense driving without clear seeing. We don't know what we're doing. So it's, in a way, it's forgivable, but it doesn't mean that it's liberating, that living our life as we do is actually doing anything but reinforcing more stress for ourselves and for others, more hate, more greed, and all the suffering, all the tension that flows from those deep patterns. So we want to recognize in our, in and as that, chant, you know, that I went through during the guided meditation, realizable by the wise, onward leading toward freedom, right? There's some aspects of being present 
that we can use because when we illuminate the present moment with this wisdom awareness, it becomes clearer and clearer what's helpful and not helpful. We'll feel the attraction, the sort of gravitational pull of habit. That's not going to disappear. As long as those habits are in the mind, you know, towards indulging in things that don't really lead anywhere, for example, as long as the, those grooves are there, they're going to, those grooves are going to exert their gravitational pull. But awareness knows the gravitational pull and tastes what it sets in motion if I indulge in that gravitational pull. And then that allows wisdom to do its work. Wisdom is also impersonal. It isn't you or me that has to be wise. But we have to, to practice, create the conditions for wisdom to do its work, which is, well, instead of acting on this pull in my heart, this gravitational pull to spend another hour watching TV or eating another bowl of this or reacting to something that irritates me with aversion and irritation and hatred, instead of acting on those gravitational pulls, the mirror of awareness reveals the other possibility, which is just to feel what it feels like to have that tug. Just because there's a tug for me to do what I've done before, doesn't mean I actually have to do what I've done before. I just have to be willing to feel the tug as it actually arises in my heart, in my body, in the mind. Oh, there's this impulse. It feels like this. And it's not even, even though we use the word like I'm resisting this tug, you know, I feel the impulse to eat more, to watch more, to react with more hatred or more aversion or more lust or whatever. Even though I feel those impulses, it's not like I have to resist those impulses. It's really like what awareness reveals is this capacity to be aware, intimate with the impulse. That's the option of feeling the pull without concluding I have to do something, I have to be the somebody who does something because of that pull, that tug. We can instead, in a sense, be the someone who knows there's a tug and it feels like this. So we're, in a way, we're taking refuge in the awareness there is this tug. And it's a kind of grieving. We're grieving the sense of self that usually acts on the tug. In a way, by not feeding it, by not acting it out, it's dying a little bit. <laughs> right? The person who normally gets up and gets the thing out of the refrigerator or watches the next hour of TV or, you know, whatever. I'm just mentioning some of the things I notice in my own life, but I'm sure you have your own version of sort of doing th things that are not in alignment with, with what the heart knows to be in the direction of freedom, in the direction of release, in the direction of more love and more space and more like more of that ventilated space you know instead of the constricted oppressive space that we often experience in our lives at work in our relationships in our relationship to our own body 
in a relationship to our many communities that we're part of or want to be part of. It can often be feel oppressive, the, the weight of these patterns that exist in all of our minds to do what we've done before, relate the way we've related before, get the natural results of relating in that way. If I relate with fear, you know, like even in terms of the sort of racial reckoning that we're hopefully in the middle of still, where there's just a little bit more light collectively that we're shining on our racial identities. And, uh, and then because of this collective and personal mindfulness awareness we have around being racial beings, of course, it's a constructed notion race, but it's real in our society, the implications of these identities, right? It has force. It affects how people live and how people are treated. So we have this way of being um, illuminating this space. And then we can notice how, as a white person in my case, you know, how the grooves exist to perceive things in this way, to react in this way, to think in this way, to feel ashamed or to feel arrogant in this way. We can notice these things. I can same thing I could say, I could talk about being identified as a man, a male, and how understanding, like illuminating that space, or being a you know a relatively well educated person in our society or whatever it might be, we can use awareness to illuminate it. And then we have to, by noticing the grooves, the tendencies, with more honesty, more clarity, more forgiveness and compassion, understanding that just doing what we've always done isn't contributing to my well-being, isn't contributing to anybody's well-being, we can begin to grieve the not acting them out, right? So that tendency is dying. We don't know who we're going to become. We just are pretty confident it's okay for that tendency to wither away through non-use, right? And this is the potential of awareness, strengthening the awareness in all the ways that we do, like meditating every day, but remember, meditation doesn't mean that we're directing our attention to the breath. That can be a useful strategy. But we need to know that all the strategies that we use when we're sitting or walking, doing walking meditation, are actually strengthening this refuge of awareness, this stability, this very powerful um, capacity to be aware. I like to think of it as a soft power. And you might remember in the Tao Te Ching, there's that, uh, that image of water being this powerful force. Here's the passage. And if you don't know, the Tao Te Ching is the, um, one of the ancient texts in Taoism. And it goes like this. The weakest thing in the world can overmatch the strongest things in the world. Nothing in the world can be compared to water for its weak and yielding nature. Yet in attacking the hard and the strong, nothing proves better than it. For there is no alternative to it. The weak can overcome the strong 
and the yielding can overcome the hard. This all the world knows, but does not practice. And uh, one of the other similes that I like from the Buddhist tradition is the one the Buddha used of the sails on a big ship rotting in the humidity and the wind and rain and the sunshine over time. And this is the image the Buddha uses for how the practice progresses. We're wearing something down. So this sunshine of awareness, the stability, omnipresence of awareness, the heart that knows, that receptive knowing, oh, it's like this now. This is being felt, this is being known. It's not judging my neurotic tendencies that have been conditioned in to my heart because of culture and all the conditioning forces that have conditioned my mind to be the way it is, my personality to be it. it doesn't Awareness doesn't judge, just like a mirror doesn't put any spin on what it's reflecting. It just reflects, it just reflects, it just knows, it just knows, and it allows this very natural and impersonal knowing, or wisdom rather, that we call insight. So that word we use to refer to this lineage here in the West of early Buddhism, or Theravada Buddhism, we call insight meditation or vipassana meditation, which means insight, because of this learning that awareness allows. And the key is to really make it our lifestyle, not, you know, we're not in it for a few minutes or for an hour sit every day or a 20-minute sit every day. We're really cultivating the stability of awareness so it it's there to some degree all day long. And it slowly, you know, I've been at it almost 40 years now, um, and pretty sincere, pretty regular, you know, every day to some degree. I don't I haven't missed too many days in those years. And uh, it becomes more and more the habit, a very useful, functional habit of the mind to be aware. And of course, that awareness, that capacity was always there. It just wasn't purified. It wasn't developed. The mind wasn't keeping it in mind. So now more and more during the day, the mind is aware that there's awareness operating, doing its thing, allowing that learning to happen and to deepen. Saida Utejaniya, one of my teachers from Burma, a Buddhist monk from Burma, uh, Myanmar, says, the, the awareness we are seeking is unprompted. We are not digging for it. We are simply residing in the ebb and flow of nature itself. In another place he said, let the mind and body do what they naturally do. It just needs to be seen, that's all. When you don't have clarity, never mind. Just keep practicing. Just acknowledge there is not much clarity. That is right view, wise view. Right. So we don't have to have an expectation, oh, because I value awareness, I should be this sort of crystal clear human being. Because when our mind is a mess and our heart is disturbed, and our body is, you know, all wiry, restless, or dead, heavy, then 
awareness will reveal what a mess it is. We don't have to be perfect. We simply have to be willing to feel and recognize it's like this now. And this is a real discovery about the capacity of awareness. It doesn't have a problem. It fundamentally doesn't have a problem with being a mess of a human being. One, one of our teachers in our sort of bigger Vipassana Insight Meditation Collective of teachers um, just was uh, co-wrote a book called, uh, I think it's like Being a Hot Mess or When You're a Hot Mess. <laughs> that's a great title because that's how it feels sometimes. You know, we're the mind, the heart, the body is a hot mess. It's a real mess. Just like our world, I don't know about you, but doesn't it appear that way, right? It does appear that way a lot of the time. It's not the whole truth. There's some goodness, there's some wisdom, some real beauty in the world, but it's a hot mess too. And it may feel like, first I've got to clean up my room, first I've got to clean up the world, first I have to diet, first I have to do yoga, then take a shower, you know, and then I can be mindful. But it's, that's just acting out this aversion like, I'm happy to be in the knowing when I'm in a really beautiful space and everything's nice. And that's the real trick of our practice. Like if we're going to build the momentum and the trust and awareness, we have to understand in a direct way. We have to actually experiment and then come to understand in a direct way that the heart always prefers to be present. The heart, when it's aware, the heart never would consciously choose to be numb or to be disconnected or to be oblivious. It, it seems to make sense, like when we're hurting, to you know, somehow use oblivion as a kind of medicine. Oh, I'm just going to spend the whole night drinking and watching TV and eating potato chips or something like that. You know, as a way of like, I'm hurting so much, it rationally seems to make sense to dull out, to numb out, right? And so we have to understand that from that perspective, it does seem to make sense. But what really makes sense in the long haul is to cultivate a mind and heart that understands that the pleasure from disconnecting is always limited. It's real. When we're hurting and we find a way to disconnect, it does feel better, right? when we mask the pain, when we turn away from the pain, when a friend comes over and makes us laugh. So we don't want to lie to ourselves and say that these ways of managing the pain of life, ordinary existential pains, the whole spectrum of pain and discomfort, because one, we're going to continue to use those ways of masking pain, turning away from pain, and we want, when we do it, we want to actually be good at it, you know, because there are better and worse ways to turn away from pain, to mask it, right? Taking a walk in the woods 
or hanging out with a wholesome friend and having that, you know, using them to help you hold space, that can be a pretty useful way to manage a difficult time. But we always, like, we want to use those strategies as a way of buying time so that the confidence we have in awareness can come back online. Same thing with, you know, meditation practice. We might be sitting still or doing some walking meditation and a lot of pain might arise for us. It feels really hard to be with in the body, in the energetic heart, in the mind, in terms of the thoughts and mental images that are, in a way, they can feel like they're haunting us because they come, every mental image, every thought, and then it reverberates viscerally with emotion and that energetic felt sense, right? And then that energetic emotional sense then triggers more of the mental images and the thoughts. And it can be, we can be really out of balance because of that. And then it actually can be useful medicine, like awareness can say, Mark, you're a hot mess. You need to find some relief so that the system of the heart, mind, and body can settle down. And because it will settle down, then you can remember there's a more profound refuge to help you with these torments. But the first step is maybe turning away from the involvement, from the getting pushed around, like breaking the spell the mind is entranced. And you know how it is when we're caught in a storm. It's like it feels risky to leave it because it feels like if I turn away from it, it's going to eat me up. But it can be a very powerful move to know that it's okay to turn away from unresolved problems, painful problems in our lives. Just like it can be really profound to say, I'm not going to look at the news for a week. It's scary, isn't it? Like, oh, what's going on? But it's probably not going to kill us. And it really changes how the heart relates because a lot of that looking at the news may be a way, uh, unhelpful cycle of tormenting the heart. You know, activating fear, activating fear, activating fear without actually you or I contributing more to the well-being of the world because we're listening to news, we know more how to make things better. Probably it's more the activation of fear and fixed views and self-righteousness and hate and who knows what else. I'm not saying we should eliminate all the news. I'm just saying that we want to know how to turn away from what's painful and disturbing so that the system settles. And when the system settles, to remember this more profound refuge of awareness. And you can use the little teaching that I gave us during the guided meditation, here and now. Whatever it is, it's here and now. Whatever thoughts I'm going to think, they should be turning the attention to what's here and now. It's timeless. It's not coming and going. I, I can't miss it. 
Oh, it was there and now it's gone. <laughs> no, no, it's timeless. And th that really evokes, that timeless really evokes trust. Like here and now and timeless means like I'm not really dependent on, I don't need other conditions. It encourages investigation. That's sort of a barometer like as we get more intimate with the present moment, we'll feel the enlivening quality, the proximity to the mystery. Remember, that doesn't mean it's pleasant in that kind of usual sense, but it's enlivening. It feels real. like Just like being numb, being disconnected, even if it's relatively pleasant, it has a feeling of being, I like to use the image of being packed in styrofoam. We may feel safe, but the consequence is we also feel dead because we're not being real with the conditions of the moment. We're in a little self-created bubble. You know, and a lot of the mental health and uh, emotional health issues that we all experience is because we rely too much on these self-constructed bubbles of being disconnected in order to feel safe. But we also feel disconnected, not alive, right? So it's disheartening, these strategies we use to, to manage pain. So ultimately, we have to move in the direction of what's enlivening, and that's the ehipasiko, come and see, encouraging investigation. And because we're willing to feel the aliveness, the mystery, the uncertainty, the vividness of the present moment, not the way we think it is, but the reality of here and now, then we can, only then we sense that it's liberating, that it's in the direction of release. And in a way there's, you can use it as a kind of a counterweight. There's moments when the mind is entangled, identified, attached, grasping, clinging, reacting. And there are moments when the mind is aligned with knowing, with being open, being receptive. This exposure of being open seems more risky, but it's actually, it's like one of those uh, great paradoxes, you know, that are so true in spiritual life. There's a great poem that Rumi wrote that got translated, I think, by Coleman Barks, what looks like water turns out to be the flames that burn us. What looks like the flames that are going to burn us turns out to be the cool water. So this learning to trust this openness, this awareness, it can feel, the exposure can feel, no, it's like I'm signing up for my death. But it, it really has this flavor of liberation and we have to learn how to sense, feel, intuit, that taste of liberation, that taste of freedom, that feeling of release that's there in the present moment, in the awareness of the present moment, here and now, timeless, 
encouraging investigation, having this taste of freedom to be realized by oneself, to be realized by the wise. And I think that last piece, to be realized by the wise, means that no one can do it for us and that we have to put down our last line of defense, thinking that we know what we're doing. Because <laughs> that idea that we know, even like, oh, I'm a really into Buddhism, Buddhist awareness practice, establishing these ways of establishing awareness, trusting awareness, abiding in awareness. I'm really into it. Any fixed notions have to be abandoned. So that's why, I don't know if I mentioned it in this guided sit, but sometimes I'll even use that term like a free fall or that sense of exposure. That's a good uh, um, feedback for us in our practice. If we have that sense of exposure of undefended heart of free fall, because that actually, it's sort of two sides of the same thing. The freedom the heart really is seeking, really intuits as possible. When, when, we, when um, the mind looks at that freedom from the point of view of self, it feels like exposure, like I'm falling and I don't know what I'm going to hit. And when it looks, experiences that freedom from the point of view of wisdom, it feels released of any oppressive weight, any hardness, any heldness. Things feel wide open. The heart feels capable of nimbly, effortlessly doing what needs to be done in the moment. Sensitive to the joys and sorrows, not afraid of joy, not afraid of sorrow, no fixed view to clog or to put friction, you know, into the moment. So this is my sincere wish for myself. It's my sincere wish for all of us that we take the time, you know, independent, we have to do it on our own, we take the time to really check out, is there actually a refuge here and now? Always here and now, that's timeless, that naturally is energizing, which is like a feedback or a, you know, it's a built-in barometer that we're getting close because it has energy as opposed to dullness. Here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, having the taste of freedom, totally, completely dependent on this heart and mind doing the work. Even if our, you know, the Buddha was our mother or father or best friend, they can't do the work for us. This ignorant, imperfect heart and mind, you know. Sometimes people come, you know, start their practice in their later decades and think, oh, if only I'd practiced, started practice when I was in my 20s. 
or they'll say, you know, I'm one of those people that is really distractible. I have ADHD or attention deficit disorder. Or people say, you know, I have a lot of depressive tendencies. Or they say, I have this chronic physical condition. Or I'm really busy. Or I have five kids I'm raising. Or I have a sick dog that's dying. Or There are a lot of good reasons why, you know, we're busy and our attention is drawn here and there. Absolutely. And this is still the most important thing. I guarantee that. Whatever else is on our plate as a human being, our karmic situation, everything will work better if we prioritize this investigation, this interest in Dhamma, this interest in awareness. Everything will work better. We have to make it the most important thing. And we have to be really uh, on the ball about all the little and big ways our mind justifies the opposite. Distractedness, disconnection, fixed views, you know, obsessive, obsessiveness, indulging in this and that. Thinking that, you know, that sort of endless promise. If I do this, if I become this person, if I get this thing, then I'll be happy. And it's true, you know, we, we do benefit or we do feel nice when we become the person we want to become or get the thing we want to get, but not in any meaningful or lasting way. So all those false refuges have to be seen for what they are. It doesn't mean we don't buy the new sweater. It just means we understand that if we do get that new sweater, it's just going to be that, that experience. You know, that, that little blip... And then it's in this closet, and it maybe there's a, a even a smaller blip when we put it on for the next few times. And then after a while, it's just the same old, same old. And that's true with everything in the world, except this refuge. And that's for us to check out. Did the Buddha know what he was talking about? Do the folks that have followed in the footsteps of the Buddha really know what they're talking about? Is there a refuge that is liberating for this human life. And I'll just end with this uh, passage. It's kind of the Buddha's, one of the Buddha's lion's roar. And this he was speaking to Ananda, who was his attendant for 20 years. But he was really speaking to all of us. And it's really heartfelt. And it reminds me of something Saida Utejaniya, one of my teachers, said at the end of a 14-day retreat he led. You know, if you only knew what I know about the power of awareness, you would make the effort that is needed to build the momentum, to keep it in mind. And here's what the Buddha said. What should be done for one's disciples out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them? That I have done for you. So as if the Buddha is saying that to us. Hey, I've done my job. I've set these teachings in motion for all of you. And then he says, the Buddha says to Ananda, Ananda, there are these roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate, Ananda. Do not delay or else you will regret it later. This is my instruction for you. Now let's not mistake this, this sort of 
instruction to meditate as just that formal hour or 30 minutes or 20 minutes that we put in most days. But it's really all day long. The Buddha really is talking about all day long. And the formal practice is really increasing the intention in the mind and the heart that will keep the practice arising all day long, the interest in awareness, the devotion to awareness, the trust in awareness. And this is what strengthens it, just valuing it, appreciating it. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.